This was about teaching stacks. <laughs> You're very charming. Yes. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And boy, do we have a wild one for you guys this week. Do we ever. You know, we usually either do a deep dive into a comic or a historical event important to comics. But this one, we really couldn't choose one or the other. I mean, to be fair, we've kind of done this before. You did read all the gorillas stuff while I was doing research for that episode. Uh, well, yes, but sometimes sacrifices must be made in the name of research. I'm sure it's appreciated. Well, this one brought us to a whole new medium of research. It sure did. In preparation for this episode, I listened to 16 consecutive episodes of the classic radio drama, The Adventures of Superman, specifically the famous saga of Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross. Also known as the Ku Klux Klan themselves. Top of the episode warning here. We will be discussing racialized violence throughout this episode, as well as the history of white terror organizations in America. We won't be discussing their acts of violence or repeating their rhetoric, but it will be covered. For those unfamiliar, the Superman radio show was an immensely popular children's entertainment program that aired from 1940 until 1951. The show was, for a time, the most popular children's radio program in America, airing for 15 minutes, five days a week. The show added greatly to the Superman mythos, adding in all sorts of elements that are inseparable from the comics today. They introduced the characters of Jimmy Olsen and Perry White, named the newspaper that Clark Kent worked at, the Daily Planet, and even introduced the concept of kryptonite. Since superheroes have debuted, they have never been apolitical. As covered in our Jack Kirby episode, Captain America first appeared punching Hitler in the face, and plenty of other superheroes battled the forces of fascism throughout the Second World War. Art, as in all things, cannot be apolitical. The absence or prominence of certain kinds of people and the telling of certain kinds of stories is a political statement in and of itself. It's important to note that Black people struggle to find both work in the industry itself and depiction on the page. And what creators there were in the industry usually found themselves marginalized and underpaid, and what characters were allowed to exist, existed only through racist caricatures. The very first issue of Detective Comics, published before Batman was even in the picture, featured a grossly racist caricature of a Chinese villain. And it's a legacy that the industry still has to grapple with this day. During World War II, the United States had to deal with its own relationship with race and religious tolerance in particular. For all the Nazi punching in the comics and the reckoning with the Holocaust in real life, the U.S. military was still segregated for the majority of World War II, and most Americans were not willing or ready to grapple with this. The aftermath of the war meant that white men were dealing with a new environment, one where black soldiers were vying for recognition under the GI Bill, and many of them discovered that their wives and girlfriends had been active in the workforce during their absence. This caused a crisis in white manhood. 
And as a result, many of them became easy prey for the groups who wanted to take advantage of them. Richard Bauer's book, Superman versus the KKK, lays it out very well. The KKK has existed in one form or another essentially since the post-Reconstruction period. It had various renaissances and heydays, but during World War II, it was on a downswing due to a feeling of solidarity and many people connecting the KKK's brand of white supremacy with the Nazis, which, you know, fair enough. The KKK's brand of violence was most well known to be anti-Black, but they were very much an all-flavor bigotry bonanza. They were anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic, anti-Asian, anti-Latino, anti-Union, anti-socialist, and even anti-alcohol. They viewed themselves as moral crusaders, attacking divorcees, unwed mothers, miscegenationists, and the race traitors. The KKK also was notably very, very capitalist. They demanded membership dues, charged for the hoods and the ghost costumes, did newsletters, and sold merchandise. Merchandise? Like what? According to Bowers, one of the products they offered was a jewel-studded fiery cross necklace for a future Mrs. Klansman. Also, uh, apparently this is still a thing that they do. What? A friend of mine sent me a picture recently that her sister had found while shopping for someone whose unfortunately parents decided to give them the initials KKK. Uh, and while shopping for a gag gift, uh, discovered a soon-to-be Mrs. Clan mug on sale from an actual legitimate online outlet. Again, what? Yeah. Anyways, don't do that stuff, guys. Not even ironically. The KKK took branding very seriously. We joke, but they actually did seriously rename everything they could with the K in front of it. Their rule book was called the Quran with a K. Even though all the deep dives we looked into, including those by investigative journalists, have yet to explain to us why this ostensibly evangelical hate group named the rule book after the Islamic holy text. It was a money-making scheme for, for the very wealthy people at the top and an outlet for toxic white manhood at the bottom. Violence went through ebbs and flows. By the mid-1940s, the violence wasn't particularly high. Instead, they operated more like an arm of organized crime, demanding protection money from local businesses and keeping people in line through threats and a media legend about their mysticism, honor, and dignity, which was perpetrated by movies such as the infamous Birth of a Nation film. It's hard not to emphasize the impact of Birth of a Nation, something anyone who's studied film has had the displeasure of watching. D.W. Griffith was the very first feature-length moving picture in history, defined storytelling and cinema, and led to the largest resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan since its inception in the post-Reconstruction South. It was also responsible for bringing men's story, otherwise known as blackface, to film in a big way. And depicting black men as being aggressive predators going after white women unless the brave clansmen are there to kill them it is horrifically racist violent it's three hours long and was also the first motion picture ever viewed in the white house courtesy of president woodrow wilson plenty of people were fighting back against this of course organizations we'll be mostly touching on include the anti-defamation league 
who worked with journalists and reformed white supremacists to infiltrate and expose parts of the Klan and began pushing back in the media about their mystique and legends about themselves. One such important voice here is Stetson Kennedy, who was an activist and journalist who infiltrated the Klan and fed information to the ADL. He was a bit of a publicity hound and did stunts such as holding a press conference in KKK garb, which earned him the ire of the Klan, who supposedly put a bounty on him for the stunt. Kennedy is also important because he was my first introduction to this story. When I was in seventh grade or so, I was bored and picked up a book my mom had lying around to teach to her college students. It was Freakonomics, and it had a chapter talking about Kennedy and the result of his research. Seventh grade, Steph. Look, I was bored and I didn't have my mom's computer password. My mom didn't see a problem with it until I read the sequel the next week and started having questions about sex work. Well, that's a conversation I imagine was very fun to have. The tables about price differentiations between various sex acts raise some very important questions, Brooke. Okay, but so what was this original story about? Presumably not the sex work one. No. So the Freakonomics chapter uh, actually ends up comparing the KKK's abusive information to the real estate market or something like that. It's been about a decade since I read the full book. But the story they tell is about how Kennedy infiltrated the KKK and fed information to the Superman radio show for the story Superman and the Fiery Cross. Kennedy claimed in the story that he had pitched the story, and then the show featured the Klan's secret passwords and ranks, exposing them to the public eye. Holy crap. Of course, there's a slight problem here. It's not true. Seriously? The KKK was a legal organization in many states, and it had a serious PR firm backing it up. To actually depict their real ranks or even their real name risked lawsuits. So instead, the radio show had to get creative, thus the Clan of the Fiery Cross. So was Kennedy involved at all? He was, and he probably did actually feed all those passwords and the like. They just ended up not being used. No one wrote this stuff down, did they? Nope. As always, verbal conversations are a historian's downfall. Multiple people claim responsibility for pitching the original idea. Going back to the radio show, after the war, the show needed new villains. The idea occurred to the showrunners and producers that they could use real-world issues to create storylines that were both entertaining and educational to children. They field-tested this idea with the relatively safe version of the Hate Mongers organization. How is that safe? Well, you see, the bad guy is revealed to be a Nazi all along who worked for Hitler. Safe enough as villains go, I suppose. Yep. This story, Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross, is almost a direct follow-up to the hate mongers organization. It tells the story of a Chinese-American boy named Tommy Lee, who finds himself the target of the Klan when he makes picture of Jimmy Olsen's baseball team. Okay, so I have a question. I hopefully have an answer. Why is Tommy Chinese? Wouldn't it make more sense for him to be Jewish or Black, the Klan's two biggest targets? We actually have a quote for that. From Bowers, the central character in the show and the prime target of the hate mongers would not be African American. This would counter the stereotypical belief that the Klan targeted only Blacks. In this series, the fictional hate peddlers would target a Chinese-American boy and his family. 
The script would not use dialects or accents to distinguish characters by race, religion, or geographic region. This was not about condemning Southerners or stereotyping minority groups. This was about teaching tolerance to millions of young listeners and showing just how destructive prejudice could be. Later, he quotes a consultant, Josette Frank. We used a Chinese boy who simply introduced the problem of color. We hoped this would not offend the people in Atlanta, but they were offended anyway. So it seems we needn't have gone out of their way. That's actually really fascinating. This kind of balance that they were trying to walk. African-Americans were too controversial and maybe not sympathetic enough. Chinese-Americans post-World War II were higher up in the racial hierarchy than, say, Japanese or African-Americans, but they still weren't fully accepted. Exactly. It was a choice that they made and one that clearly left an influence on popular culture. And even though the people he was defending and standing up for in this storyline weren't Black, Frank recounts being told by an African-American girl who she worked with who felt supported and encouraged knowing that Superman was against the Klan. Okay, I think that's our context, so on to the discussion of the story? Absolutely. The 16-episode arc clocks in at just under three hours of radio time. Flashy, dramatic, and regularly interrupted to remind us it's sponsored by Kellogg's Breakfast Cereal. It tells the story of a baseball team grudge turned violent after a teenage boy complains to his uncle about being kicked off the team after calling the new pitcher, Tommy Lee, racist names, picking a fight with him, and then not listening when warned that he was in the way and getting beamed with a baseball. The uncle is, of course, the leader of the local chapter of the KKK, sorry, the Fiery Cross, and quickly coaches his nephew to claim that it was a deliberate attack by Tommy Lee. The clan then burns a cross on the Lee's yard, and when they are encouraged by Clark Kent to remain in town rather than fleeing, Tommy is then abducted and requires rescuing by Superman. It is also important to know that part of the not-KKK's grudge against the Lees is that Tommy's father, Wan Lee, took a job that a former mayor of Metropolis had promised to a friend of his, which the friend later reveals he was not even remotely qualified for, but expected to get nonetheless, over a noted medical professional like Wan Lee. I'm not saying anything. Throughout the story, Clark shows a heightened awareness and knowledge of just how dangerous the clan really are. While many of the other characters believe them to be bluffing, Clark understands that these men are in fact willing to engage in violence and even murder to get what they want. Intentionally or not, the initial Jewish coding of Superman flavors these passages, making it seem like he understands the depths of this threat in a way that white Christian police officers and his white Christian boss, Perry White, don't seem to. That is not to say that Perry White doesn't take this seriously at all. The inciting incident for Act 2 is Perry printing an editorial in the paper, calling the Klan names, and offering a large reward for the identity of any Klansman. Also important to note here, this radio play insults Klansmen a lot. Boy, do they ever. I don't think they're mentioned very often where someone doesn't call them cowardly, bigoted, undemocratic, un-American, or just stupid. It's kind of great, actually. We should start doing that, too. White's actions bring the attention of the cowardly, racist, bigoted, undemocratic clan to him. And unfortunately, 
as a result, the leads fade into the background as instead the story refocuses to about how the clan is now trying to shut down Perry's journalistic crusade against them and their attempts to torture and murder, murder him and Jimmy Olsen. Clark ends up teaming up with the young boy from the beginning who has a change of heart and manages to save Tommy Lee's life by calling Superman to come to his aid. The boy, Chuck Riggs, becomes Superman's sidekick for the middle segment of the series, flying with him while looking for Perry and Jimmy. Huh. Well, I think I prefer the other version. No spoilers. We'll get to that. For the final third of the show, we see Chuck's uncle, Max Riggs, escape Superman's clutches and go on the run. First, he leaves the state and goes to the chief mogul, of the clan of the giant racist chickens who berate him for endangering their business operations by involving a man like Perry White instead of sticking to low-level scare tactics. The mogul then goes on to lay out how the higher-ups in the KKK's perspectives, it's all about the money, and they use racist language and tactics to exploit the anger and hate of others, even making the same America is a nation of immigrants argument that we heard Jimmy Olsen recount earlier in the program, with both even mentioning Native Americans as the exception. Enraged, Riggs kills the mogul and then goes back to, to Metropolis by jumping on a plane that's departing in 15 minutes, reminding us all just how different life was before 2001. When back at Metropolis, he discovers that most of his friends have been arrested and the rest are fleeing town or refuse to speak to him out of the public shame they had undergone after being outed as giant loser bigoted clansmen. Riggs then tries to attack the baseball game with a sniper rifle, only to be foiled by Superman and taken to jail. Jimmy's baseball team wins the day with the help of Chuck Riggs, subbing in for Tommy Lee, whose arm was broken when he was kidnapped by the clan of the flammable bedsheets. And the entire team, and Perry, and Clark, go to the hospital to give Tommy a golden baseball trophy, as they know he's the reason they won the game, even though he wasn't able to pitch. And that's where the story ends, right? Wrong. I knew this was sounding a bit too straightforward for one of our episodes. Absolutely. In 2019, DC Comics announced an upcoming project to finally bring the long-lauded radio drama to page, adapted by comic veteran Jean Luen Yang and portrayed by the Japanese art team known as Guri Hero, and aimed for the same child audience the original radio drama targeted. So strange to think that it's novel these days that a superhero like Superman is being written with accessibility to children in mind. It is. Though one of the things that has really made me a Yang fan over the years is that he understands that being accessible to all ages doesn't mean removing depth or cheapening the story overall. For one, the stakes are incredibly high. Life and death, bigotry, and the fierceness of the clan are clearly portrayed with Guri Hero's youthful art. And the three-issue miniseries also makes the bold decision to have the story be a period piece, taking place in 1946, just like the radio drama itself. There's a definite and powerful personal perspective that Yang provides throughout the comic, and it helps his adaptation strengthens many of the weaker points of the radio drama story. For one, the Lees are far more fleshed out, with the unnamed sister in the drama made a deuteragonist and given the anglicized name of Roberta. 
they don't disappear partway through the story, but provide both the narrative framing and the clear statements of undertone throughout. That America is a nation of immigrants and its proudest citizens, like Superman himself, are results of these traditions. Roberta, in particular, becomes important as she takes the place of Chuck Riggs as Superman's sidekick in the retelling. Chuck still has redemption arc, which of course is important for children to see, especially if they are guilty of bigotry that has been taught to them before they know better. But this difference also feels more grounded. Chuck still has a way to go in his personal development, and his reward is the friendship and understanding he was closed off to before, not a flight with Superman. There's also a lot of emphasis put on Clark's feelings of alienation and otherness as a result of his own immigration status. In his everyday life as Clark Kent, he is still removed from the people he looks like. He doesn't feel human. There are parts of him that will always stand out, no matter how much he can mask himself. And that hurts Clark more consistently than even his newly found weakness to kryptonite. He's afraid of his cultural history, but it's only by embracing it and learning about it that he can fully realize his potential to do what Superman is most known for today, fly. This new emphasis on Clark's emotional attachment to the immigrant narrative is so very important to see spelled out to, for readers. It connects Clark to other people who may recognize their own grappling with being part of a diaspora, especially those who may not have any memories of their culture directly and have to learn their history to feel that connection to it. It's similar to many narratives of Black and Jewish people share. That does highlight one of the blind spots in this retelling, which generally does a good job of adapting the story for modern audiences. While we have a wonderful allegory to Zish Breitbart and Joe Greenstein, the Jewish strongman who Joe Schuster credited as inspiration from his childhood for Superman, there is still a lack of Black or Jewish voices for this story, despite the known targeting of those communities by not just the KKK, but various hate groups that have grown in number and influence since the original radio drama's recording. That is a pretty glaring exception to this comic. We explained why the original radio drama chose to highlight anti-Chinese sentiments, but that was in the cultural environment of 1946. In 2019, though those same sentiments can definitely still be important, especially when considering that the first few issues were published at the start of the coronavirus, but it is also important to, to acknowledge the need for Black, Brown, and Jewish voices in recent years. It's possible that Yang, being a noted voice in comics for the Chinese-American perspective, wanted to both stay truer to the original radio drama, as well as lean on his own documented relationship with Superman and how comics have portrayed Asian communities. And I appreciate the changes he made to be more inclusive, highlighting attacks on a Catholic priest and Jewish rabbi, revisioning Inspector Henderson from the radio drama as an African-American detective. But there's still a need in comics for most of those voices to be amplified. We also need to take into account the limitations of being a three-issue limited release series. And at the end of the day, Superman slash Smashes the Clan is a wonderful addition to have to comics and well-deserving of the acclaim and interest it received. This story, both the original and the rec recreation, play an important part of taking the mask off the clan itself. It made them not grand, all-knowing villains to be scared of, but ordinary people with a corrupt organization that didn't even care for their own members. 
Well, it would be an exaggeration to say that the radio play or even the investigative work done by reporters and organizations were solely responsible for the KKK's decline in the late 40s. Many people do believe and argue that it definitely was part of a larger willingness in popular culture to not take them seriously and the gradual decline of that particular era of bigoted bedsheet shenanigans. Well, I had an absolute blast with this ep episode. I've been a Superman fan most of my life and a huge proponent of the depth of storytelling and importance Superman can be used for, which kind of puts me in a bind today because it's really hard for me to limit my Superman wrecks to a single story. I could pick a dozen Superman comics for recommendation and feel like I'm leaving off some of the greats, but I am doing the classics for this episode today and if i have to choose a single classic superman tell to go along with superman smashes the clan i'm going to choose superman versus muhammad ali from 1978 written by denny o'neill and with brilliant pencils by neil adams while this team is most famous for their groundbreaking work with batman during the 70s and 80s they really pulled all the stops in doing a supersized tribute to two giants of both culture and activism of the time, Superman and Muhammad Ali. The tone is light and not nearly as pointed as Superman taking on the Klan or some of Ali's more, more polarizing civil rights activism. It's a fun romp, but it does touch on many of the things that makes both giants beloved to this day. For my modern rec, I'm going to do another DC Inc. property and betray Brooke in the process. My choice is Shadow of the Batgirl by Sarah Kuhn, art by Nicole Gao. It's the story of Cassandra Kane coming into her own and forming her own identity as Batgirl, as well as her relationships with both Barbara Gordon and a restaurant owner named Jackie. It's probably my favorite DC Inc. book besides this one, and it's also another one about an Asian American heroine. The fact that I get to beat Brooke to the punch wrecking a story about her all-time favorite character, it's just a bonus. The art is gorgeous, and it's really some fun, accessible gun storytelling. You fiend. <laughs> and there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or rating, or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about how modern Superman should punch more KKK members, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin McElroy for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. seriously considering like keeping my wreck on like a sticky note in the corner of my computer so you wouldn't know it was coming I thought well I didn't I didn't know it was coming anyway I didn't look ahead <laughs> that makes it even better